Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be with you. I um, often share sort of sciencey illustrations from the pulpit, and I love science, love reading about it, and uh, finding an intersection. And uh, but for the last maybe two years, I've been a little bit reluctant to to do that because um, my good friend Tracy Petrie, who's got a PhD in some sciencey uh, field is always sitting right over here, and I have to be very careful about what I say. I have to make sure it's accurate and read up on Wikipedia, which is where I get all my science illustrations, to make sure it's 100% uh, proof. But he's not here today, so I'm going to share one with you, and I'm just going to, you know, let it rip, and we'll just let, uh, we'll just assume that it's all accurate. But it's a story, um, or an illustration, uh, or an anecdote, or a couple of them about Edwin Hubble, uh, you know his name, if not who he is, from his big, gigantic uh, telescope that flies around the Earth. Um, it's not his, but he's named, it's named after him. And he was one of the most important scientists or people, thinkers of the 20th century, and brilliant scientist. We don't normally think of scientists and athletes in the same category, but not only was he a scientist, but he was a brilliant athlete as well at a single high school track meet in 2000, I'm sorry, 1906. Hubble won the pole vault. He won the discus, the hammer throw, the standing high jump, the running high jump, and the mile relay. He won all of those events, and he placed third in the broad jump. So brilliant scientific mind, top athlete, he was also extremely good-looking. I didn't come to that conclusion myself by looking up a picture. Someone else described him that way, described him as handsome almost to a fault. It's like he was built in a lab by a mad scientist to make all of us mere mortals feel terrible about ourselves. Um, Chin's here as well. You're a scientist, so I, I still need to be careful, but I think I've got everything right. When Hubble began his career, we only knew of one galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, and over the course of his career, he proved that not only was there many, but there were millions, uh, and that the entire universe is expanding, which was a new idea. So in addition to being brilliant, handsome, athletic scientist, he's now made two of the biggest discoveries of the 20th century. But it wasn't enough for him. It never is, is it? A writer called him the cosmic egoist because he constantly made up stuff about himself that never happened. Encounters with wild bears in the, wo- in the woods, saving two women from drowning, bravely leading a group of men in World War I to their safety when they were afraid, even though he arrived very late in the war and probably never heard a gunshot. He bragged about a duel with a Navy officer who was supposedly flirting, uh, his wife was supposedly flirting with him, and they had a duel in the library. They actually did have a duel, but they both fired their guns at the ground just to save the Navy officer's honor. Kind of a weird story. He also claims he was invited to a bout with the heavyweight champion of the world because he had fought during World War I uh, an exhibition bout with the French champion. 
and had beat him with one punch, or so he claimed. None of this was true. Now, this story may have been a lot more shocking a few years ago, say maybe in 2016. But while we may avoid telling lies that everyone knows are untrue in our own lives, something about this personal editorializing of facts feels perhaps a bit familiar and uncomfortably familiar. Thomas Burton says, I quoted in the front of your bulletin, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, not least of which the ones we cherish about ourselves. For most of the people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs. I don't think Merton here is talking about solipsism or simply that the us that exists in our brains is a projection upon reality, which is certainly true, and there's nothing that we can do about that. But he's talking about this constant editing process that we have in our own lives, this creative and constantly changing autobiography that we present to other people. We present as reality as the version. And there may be many versions because we have many relationships. Now, some of this is sort of just part of being human. It's benign when someone compliments us about something and we have that false humility kick in. Oh, I'm not really that great. Come on. Some of it's kind of benign or maybe not speaking up to correct something that's untrue about us that makes us look better. Sometimes people ask me, for example, where I went to college and out here, no one has ever heard of Stanford. And it sounds enough like Stanford that that's what people hear. Do I correct them? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Reasonably benign. Why go out of your way to correct someone? Why inconvenience yourself? to the more sinister, the Edward Teller sort of editorializing, where you're planting and then cultivating and watering in order to project this false reality. And we have more tools to do that than ever before. It's so easy on social media. media. Or maybe we lie about things to cover up something we did at work, a mistake. We lie to stay out of trouble. And mom, if you're listening, she is, or she will be. She's always the first person to listen to the podcast. She's figured it out, Scott. I'm sorry that you haven't. To my mom, I'm, I'm sorry, but there were times that I lied to cover up my tracks once, maybe twice. The details aren't that important. But as she knows, I wasn't very good at this. When you borrow your parents' car and they find beer in the car the next morning. If you're going to go with the, it's not mine, I don't know whose it is, I don't know anything about it approach, you should probably act a little bit more shocked, a little bit more surprised when they put the six-pack down in front of you. That didn't work. It didn't play so well. They didn't buy it, as it were. 
I, I had this strange reluctance to lie except to my parents when I was about to get in trouble, which was odd um, because they're great people. But when we're making our way through the world without a, a stable self, without a personhood, without a, an identity that's congealed around something that's weighty enough to keep us, us, in every situation, in the midst of changing circumstances, and in the midst of opinions that we can't control, we editorialize. We create a self. And this self, we all know, is vulnerable. This self needs armor. Have you ever noticed that no one smiles in old-timey photographs? Think about it for a moment while I get a sip. No one is ever smiling when you look at these old-time... I don't mean from the 1980s. I mean, like, way back from the Edward Teller days, Edwin Teller. They all have this very stoic look, and some say it's because you had to be really still for the exposure because cameras took a long time to expose. And, but that changed fairly quickly as technology advanced. Some say it was because everyone uh, had bad teeth, and so they kept their mouths closed when they were in a picture because they didn't want to be captured that way. And some argue that Victorian people in general thought that smiling for no reason just kind of made you look silly. It made you look like an idiot. I'm going to go with the last one or maybe a combination of the last two because I get it. I understand that. There was a long time where I would not smile in a photograph at all. I mean, viscerally opposed to smiling, even if everyone in the picture was having a great time. And there's not a single photo that I know of that is in existence during about a decade of my life in which I'm smiling. It's sad. If you go to my parents' house, I don't know why you would, but if you look through all of the photograph albums, it's like there's this great depression that settled in over my life around middle school through, um, I'd like to say high school, but it kind of kept going into adult life. You see, I had gotten made fun of when I was in middle school because I didn't have an upper lip. I mean, it wasn't missing, but it was very thin. And it turns out now, according to Cosmopolitan magazine, that uh, George Clooney has this shape of mouth as well. But that didn't help me a whole lot in 1986. So I was sort of made fun of with all of the stupid, uncreative names that kids can come up with. And so I did not smile because I thought it amplified that look. And even at my wedding, I remember the days leading up practicing smiling in front of the mirror because I had done it so seldomly, practicing smiling. And I forced myself to smile in our wedding photos because I knew we'd have these forever. Now, Katie told me that she loved my smile, which made me love her. And she said that I looked really cute when I smiled, which I really didn't understand, nor did I really want. For a while, I didn't want to look cute. You know, I said, "Hun, I don't want to look cute. I'm not a puppy. 
you know, I want to look tough. I want to look mean. I want to look intimidating. I guess I envisioned my false self as sort of this Clint Eastwood type of thing that could just, you know, stare at people and make them freeze. Smiling, you see, for a long time, and it still does to some degree, makes me feel vulnerable. And I didn't like that. And so my armor was simply not smiling in any circumstance. And it's, it's really sad to look back at these, this decade of pictures where I look like this Victorian person or Old West person. Very sad. But maintaining this armor and lots of other iterations of it, not just smiling, but I didn't want people to look at me from a profile because I was also told that I have a really large nose, which is actually true. And so I would go so far as to scoot the passenger seat up if I had a passenger so that I could look at them more straight on rather than them be looking at my profile. There's a lot of this, a lot of armor. But it's maintaining this armor... Maintaining this false self, many false selves, is a lot of work. And it takes a lot of vigilance to keep people happy, to keep up that facade and for no one to be the wiser. But see, if no one ever found out that I was faking it, if no one ever knew what my armor was, If no one ever knew I was hiding intentionally the things about myself that I didn't like, I knew. I knew it. And so as I told you guys last week, I knew it, and so I drank because I covered it that way. I didn't feel bad about about myself when I was drinking. Well, what does this have to do with our series? We talk about being well. What does this autobiography have to do? Well, when we talk about wellness, when we talk about bodies, when we talk about physicality, we're talking about things that are absolutely spring-loaded with shame. And I hate to say it, but the church has not been a good place to work out our shame, to deal with our shame. We often make it worse in the church. You see, we we have all kinds of solutions for guilt. Jesus paid your debt on the cross. He redeemed you. He made you righteous. You were justified by faith. And all of these things are miraculous and no doubt necessary. But they're rather transactional. And the trouble with this is is that Most of the existential, psychological problems that I grew up with and that I'm sure you can recognize to some level, the reason that I was living this bifurcated reality, this creating these false selves, is not because I saw myself as a wrongdoer. It's not because of guilt. It was because of shame. What was leading me to medicate my discontent, my existential ennui, 
Did I say that right, Fantine? We have a French person here. See, I'm being checked by all sorts of people here. This, what was leading to this discontent and eventually my hiding at the bottom of a bottle was shame. It was a dislike of who I was, not regret over what I had done, although that certainly existed and exists for you, I'm sure. And the problem added to that was is that growing up in a Christian household, but even if you just grew up in the United States, you kind of absorb this idea of God that doesn't help. Because what this story of God tells us is that there's something about us, something foundational, something fundamental to our personhood that predisposes Him not to like us, to reject us, in fact, and that He cannot so much look upon us without a feeling of wrath, without a feeling of revulsion, to not just what we've done, but to who we are. And I don't think that I'm putting too much sort of topspin on this to make a point. This is what most people think of when they think of God, the God of Christianity. And it's encoded in some of our most famous hymns, Rock of Ages, Foul I to the Fountain Fly, Amazing Grace, God Saved a Wretch, such as I. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Would he devote that sacred head for such a, anyone? A worm as I. A wretch, a worm, foul. Martin Luther famously said that sinners are attractive because they are loved, not loved because they are attractive. And I understand what he's getting at there. Because when you love someone, you bestow a gift upon them that makes them beautiful, and it makes them more lovely. And that person grows as they sense that love. But there's something more ominous embedded in that, is that there's nothing lovely about us at all. The most visceral response that I had as I worked through shame, the most visceral response that I had to God was self-loathing. It was self-revulsion. It wasn't liberation. Because I believed that that's exactly what He wanted me to feel. That He creates that sense in us so that we will repent. And it's then that He can love us. Do you see, this order can be very sinister because the thing that we most fear, the thing that we construct elaborate, fictionalized accounts of ourselves to prevent being seen and being rejected, becomes the story that we tell about God. It's the story of love with a catch. It's the story of love with footnotes. It's the story of love with caveats. 
Make sure you read the fine print before you assume that God loves you. The thing that we most fear, being seen and rejected, we make that the story of God. Which is strange, because did you catch our first reading? In the very first chapters, we read of a God, and we miss this because we make it about the downfall. We make it about the sin. We make it about exclusion. We make it about rejection. We can't read it any other way, but there is another way. Because in those chapters, there is a God that is so full of love that He creates humanity to be friends with them, that He creates humanity for companionship, that there is love that is so overflowing from who He is that He wants to bestow it upon others. And even when we blow it in the most colossal ways possible, which Genesis begins to tell the story of, He comes to find us. He seeks us out. And he sees these silly little coverings, the fig leaves that the writer of Genesis talks about, and that we certainly can understand because our, all of our false selves are but that. They're fig leaves. They're vulnerable. They blow away in the wind. He sees these things which are an image for all the ways that we cover and we hide our shame but he doesn't shame them. He goes and he finds them and he gives them something more permanent. He gives them something more lasting. Verse 21, which we didn't quote, he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. God's lament, you see, that they have gained knowledge. It is not this lament because now they're smart, now they're intelligent, now they know things that we know, it is that, it is like the the parents lament when their child grows to the point where they used to run around the house just carefree, naked, didn't care who saw them, to that moment where the child now thinks, hmm, I'm embarrassed. I shouldn't run around like this. I shouldn't expose myself like this. And they lose their laughter over innocent things because they've come to know the world as it is and they've grown suspicious of it. They've begun to understand that if I let my true self out, I will be hurt. And it scares them and it scares you and it scares me. They've grown suspicious of a world and are afraid and they're beginning to develop strategies of self-protection. God recognizes his children's vulnerability and he covers it. He protects them, which sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it, to our gospel reading. When he saw the crowds, he had what? Revulsion, disgust. He turns his face away. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. This is that deep-rooted, visceral feeling is what that word is getting across because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Let me end here by telling you that God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of you. He does not love you with a catch. He does not love you with footnotes and fine prints. He doesn't love you with ifs and whens. He's the the one person, you see, that sees all of you and loves you anyway, that sees all of you and doesn't reject you in any way. And we have that magic where we have relationships. Sometimes it happens in marriage that gives us a sense of that, a picture of that. But it's not all that. It's but a glimpse. But God comes into a covenant relationship with you and promises that He sees everything already. He knows you, and He loves you anyway, and He will never leave. He will never chastise you for your weakness. And these little physical imperfections that we have about ourselves, that we loathe about ourselves, He says that He made those things and that He loves you. Not in spite of them, but because that's part of who you are. And he says that all those places in your body that maybe you carry a little bit more weight than our society says is proper and beautiful, what he says is he says that all of you is lovely to him. And it's in those times where our armor fails us, where we are exposed, where his love begins to finally make sense, where we get a sense of it. Jesus, you see, takes on flesh. He takes on skin, and he comes not to the beautiful. He comes not to the perfect, but he comes to the diseased, and he comes to the sick, and he comes to the ugly. He comes to the world, those that the world has rejected and shamed just finish with the quote that we started with and expand. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man, Merton writes, this is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. And to be unknown to God is altogether too much privacy. My false self and my private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's love. And that, friends, is the real danger. Because in hiding, we hide not only from hurts, we hide not only from rejection, but we hide from God's love as well. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you have anointed this time with your goodness and your joy over us and that we would be able to leave this place having a sense of your joy, having a sense that you made us, you knitted us, that we are the person that we need to be in our most honest, most vulnerable moments. The person that is unarmored is the person that you love and that you want us to be, the person that does not despise themselves is the person who can love their neighbor, the person who has gifts to bestow upon the world. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us be those people and 
that this church would be that kind of church, not a place where shaming goes on, but a place where liberation happens. And we pray you would do that even this morning. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.